Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, August the 7th, 2023. For those of us who are working in August, first of all, I want to thank the kind folks at Liberties Quarterly. They're sponsoring Keynote now. High quality quarterly, full of the most interesting writing. And all my guests on the show are going to get an annual subscription for free. So they're the lucky ones. I certainly encourage everybody to look up Liberties Quarterly online, an, an excellent read, an essential read in our confusing times. And perhaps in our confusing times, the most confusing thing of all is AI. Uh, it's always in the headlines these days. There's a piece today about. Uh, how Dungeons and Dragons are telling their illustrators to stop using AI to generate artwork for the fantasy franchise. Lots of confusion between human and machine creativity when it comes to not just Dungeons and Dragons, but also literary work. Uh, recently, uh, Mona Awad and Paul Tremblay. Paul Tremblay is a distinguished uh, horror writer. He's been on the show. They are accusing ChatGPT that uh, ChatGPT has downloaded their books without their uh, authority and are stealing their ideas. This is a very familiar theme. It's not just Awad and Trombley, um, Trembley. Um, it's becoming a theme not just with writers but with movie makers um, and graphic artists of one kind or another. Meanwhile, more headlines about how AI is going to wipe out another of our distinguished professions, architecture, apparently, according to one writer in The Guardian today. Uh, AI, AI is already way beyond what humans can do in architecture, and it's going to make all architects redundant. I always assume most architects were redundant anyway. It's a hard thing to get jobs in. Anyway, this subject... Um, isn't ending. It's only really just beginning. And one man who has dedicated his intellectual life to making sense of it is my guest today. Uh, Michael Waldridge is the professor of computer science at Oxford University and the author of a very accessible and important book, A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence, What It Is, Where We Are, and Where We're Going. It was published in 2021, Michael. Um, would you have written it differently in our age of generative AI, of chat GPT, or was that the inevitable next chapter? No, I don't think it was inevitable at all. And uh, I think, yeah, that's one of the one of the uh, one of the occupational hazards of writing about AI in the in the present day and age is that uh, is that things change quite quickly. Um, so yeah, I would definitely include another chapter on ChatGPT and how it works. ChatGPT and and large language models, how they work and and how they emerged. Uh, and it's very recent technology; it's only a couple of years old. Were you taken by surprise by this? I mean, did you understand the potential here, or was it for professionals in the field like yourself? We've had other people on the show discussing it. Everybody from. Gary Marcus to Margaret Mitchell, a lot of your colleagues. Um, were most of your community taken by surprise by, by ChatGPT? I think the truth is uh, 
In one sense, no. And the sense no is that these, what these tools were designed to do was to produce very good uh, language and what AI researchers call natural language processing, which means understanding and generating language. Uh, and the fact that they were good at that did not come as a surprise. But the one, the system that really got everybody's attention in, in 2020, we were still kind of in a, in a lockdown, uh, was, was GPT-3, which is a predecessor to ChatGPT. And we didn't quite get our hands on it, but it was clear very soon that there was, um, you know, that that represented a step change over what had happened previously. It wasn't just a little bit better. It was a lot better at generating natural language. But the thing that really caught people by surprise is that, uh, and I, I didn't see coming, uh, was the other things that it was going to be good for. I didn't anticipate all, all the other things that it was going to be good for, which on the one hand is, is as an AI professional, is slightly depressing. But in truth, I think basically, uh, as well as me not anticipating it, neither did Google, frankly, neither did most big tech companies. Um, so in some sense, yeah, the technology took people by surprise. Not that it was good at language, but the other things that it seems to be good at. Who do you think should take credit for that? I mean, Sam Altman is the new crown prince out here in Silicon Valley. It is chat GPT and that generative technology. Is it Altman's baby or was he the one who simply took a bet on it? So, uh, well, firstly, I think... Um, just remind ourselves that the, the underpinning technology is a thing called transformer architectures. And don't worry about what that means. It's kind of technical and, and a little bit involved. But that came out of a Google lab. I think it was uh, it was Google X or Google Brain. I don't remember which. In 2017. And that was the fundamental. I mean, what these things do, what large language models do is token prediction. What is the, the thing that should come next? It's just a, a it's just like your autocomplete phone feature on your phone, except on a vastly, vastly larger scale. But the, the core architecture for that, 2017, out of a Google research lab. And was that connected with Jeffrey Hinton, who, of course, has made headlines recently because he resigned from Google? Uh, I think a British-born computer scientist now based in, in Canada. I'm sure you know him. Yeah, I don't think Jeff was an author of the of the original paper. The, the original scientific paper uh, is it goes by the title Attention is All You Need, Um all you is all you need is a kind of a slightly in AI joke, whatever your favorite technology is, you know, you, you, you like sat solving technology, which is another obscure AI technology. You know, you write a paper called sat solving is all you need. So attention is all you need is the paper that that kicked it all off. And that came out of a that came out of a, a Google lab. But what OpenAI did uh, and you described it as a bet. And that's exactly what it was, is what they did is they said, OK, let's take this architecture and just turn it up to the max. Let's see how much data we can throw. Let's see how big we can make these systems and see what happens. And they got an investment from Microsoft, I believe, of the order of a billion dollars around about that time. And, what, of course, what all big tech companies have been doing over the last decade is they've all been betting wildly on AI. They've been betting, making speculative investments in huge numbers of research labs and individual researchers and buying startup companies in AI left, right and center because it was obvious that things were moving in AI. And they've all been betting very, very, very speculatively on this. But so just to bet, come back to the, the paper, attention is all you need. Uh, I found it at Cornell University. I'm not sure if this was the original white paper. 
This was developed by some researchers within Google, but ironically enough, you're suggesting it was Microsoft via OpenAI who, who made the bet. They made the big bet. Uh, just a bet. Let's see how let's see how far we can turn this up. And uh, of all the bets that have been made on AI, and we're talking incredible sums of money that have been that have been thrown at AI, mind-boggling sums of money. That's the single biggest billion-dollar bet. I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary thing. I mean, and just in in pure what's happening in in terms of the big tech companies, what this has done is, I mean, because for all intents and for all practical intents and purposes, OpenAI and Microsoft now are, you know, pretty much synonymous. AI, uh, Microsoft are their investors. Um, uh, what that's done is that's suddenly given Microsoft a lead uh, in this space. Uh, and, uh, and even with uh, Michael, even with Bard, I mean, Google's Bard now is trying to catch up. Is Bard based on the same technology, which ironically Google first had? Yes, I think I did. So I'm not I'm not familiar with the details, but yeah, basically it's going to be it's 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 going to be the same underpinning technology which came out of a Google lab. But it was that bet on OpenAI from Microsoft that was the one that 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 paid off spectacularly. So, Michael, for 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 people like myself who are not well versed in this stuff, uh, you you recently did a. Um, a masterclass, uh, uh, a 60-minute masterclass in artificial intelligence. So you know your stuff in terms of making it accessible for ordinary people like uh, my audience and myself. What is this generative AI technology? Why is it different? What does it do? So the kind of um, kind of AI programs that we've become familiar with are things like um, uh, before ChatGPT, things like um, AI to recognize abnormalities on ultrasound scans. So, for example, you go into, you know, you have chest pains. Your doctor sends you for a, a stress test on a on a treadmill, and, he, and they'll do an ultrasound scan of your of your chest, of your heart, while you're doing that. Um, and uh, a classic example of AI technology, um, for example, through a company called Ultronics based here in Oxford, is using AI to try to identify abnormalities. And basically all it has to do is it's been trained on lots and lots of examples of scans, both good scans where there are no abnormalities and, and scans where there are abnormalities. And all it's been all it has to do is to simply classify them, to recognize them as no abnormality, abnormality. Right. So that's an absolutely classic application of AI. But that's not generative in the sense that it's actually not creating anything. It's simply doing a classification task. What generative AI does is it can be used to generate text or, and, and, and to a lesser extent, but increasingly images. And in the future, what it's going to generate is it's going to be able to generate sound, music, and video. I mean, that's where the technology is going. So generative AI is different from AI that, for example, just does classification. Where does, and, and, and we did a show with um, a friend of mine who's an early stage uh, tech investor, John Borthwick out of Betaworks in New York. We talked about how much of the data for today's generative AI revolution is being built on social, ma so social media content. Where is the data coming from? The, 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 
the training material for this generative AI to produce words or images or, as you suggest, even videos? So the standard approach uh, to building these things is you need vast quantities of high quality text. So build a system like ChatGPT, a purely text-based system. In order to build that, you need enormous quantities of very high quality text. So the standard approach is you begin by just downloading the whole of the World Wide Web in its entirety. And there are some standard tools. For example, if you Google common crawl, um, there's a standard tool and a standard data set which works in exactly that principle. It just downloads the entirety of the World Wide Web and scrapes all the text from all of the web pages on, on the World Wide well, Web. This is then, all the, the stuff that is accessible. I mean, all, everything. So ironically yeah. enough, it's really the second chapter in the history of Google. Of course, Google began as a search engine by legally or otherwise downloading the entire web in in the late 90s from Stanford University uh, servers. And it is no accident that that's why it's the big tech companies that are very well placed to uh, uh, to develop this technology, because that's exactly what they're geared up to do. But you download all of that text, and that means everything that's accessible on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit, um, God help us, uh, all of it. Why do you say then- God help us? because there's an awful lot of extremely unpleasant material, which if you're not very careful, then gets fed into uh, into uh, these things. You don't have to look too hard on Reddit to find uh, to find unpleasantness. Um, so uh, the, all of the point is all of that text is downloaded and it's used as training data. And what it's used for is basically exactly what your phone does when it does uh, auto completion. You start typing a text message on your phone and your phone will suggest completions of the messages. What should come next? And how's it doing that? It's seen all the text messages that you've sent and it's it's learned what the likeliest completions are. Um, and what ChatGPT and Kodu is exactly the same thing, except that their training data is, as I say, every piece of digital text that's available in the world. Every time you upload a picture to social media, you or your kids or your friends, uh, and they helpfully label it with the name of the person or a tag about what's going on. We had a nice time, nice barbecue on the beach. What you're doing is you're feeding uh, the uh, training algorithms of these machine learning algorithms for the big tech companies. That's where all of that data comes from. Feeding the beast. No wonder Paul Tremblay, who's a horror writer, is so interested in this. How is how, how is this algorithm, if that's the right word, Michael, how is it able to distinguish between, let's say, the lies put out by Putin finance bots on Ukraine and the genuine stuff on Ukraine? Is it able to do that? Or or does that account for many of the mistakes which uh, generative AI seems to be so making? One of the difficulties with the technology at the moment is that we don't really have oversight of the training data. So we, as the general public, the people using it, we don't actually get to see exactly what went in. And there is certainly some filtering process that, that, that companies, uh, that responsible companies apply to try to, for example, capture toxic content and ensure that it doesn't get fed into the algorithm. Because if it does, it's going to reappear later. It's going to be latent within the system and you're going to be able to to, to bring it out. Downstream, so to speak. 
Yeah, so there is some filtering process that goes into the training data to try to capture that. That, but we don't get to see the, the the training data that goes on there, which means that with very high probability, all sorts of fake news is being fed into uh, into these things, and the technology itself has got no sense of what's true or what's false. Absolutely none whatsoever. So it's all that premised is... on a kind of, and this was the original thinking logic behind the Google search engine is all based on a, on a wisdom of the crowd. If, if 99% of the stuff that chat GPT is finding is saying X, then that's true. Yeah, that's one way. I think that's a, that's a, that's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah. I, I mean, so my standard example, you know, what are the things that it's going to be reliable on? It's probably going to be quite reliable on, um, you know, the life and works of Kim Kardashian, because there is so much online content about Kim Kardashian. You know, there are so many endless stories that get reported and so on, so much training data about that. It's probably going to be, probably going to be pretty reasonable. But um, veer away from those less contentious things and it, 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 it's less, less straightforward things and it starts to be much more contentious. And I say we don't get to see the training data exactly that goes in. So we don't know what it's been told. And the technology fundamentally doesn't know what's true or false. It is just trying to, like your smartphone is doing, trying to make the best guess about what should what it should output. Um, that's all the technology is. It is not trying to tell you the truth. In some sense, it's just trying to tell you uh, the likeliest thing. If I could give you a key to the chat GPT black box or the Google black box, what would you look for? What don't you know that would help us make sense of, of, of what's actually happening? You've, you've mentioned that several times that you don't actually know what goes in. It's rather like going to a restaurant and not knowing what the cook is putting into the dish that you're about to eat. And, and we all want to know that, of course. Yeah. So the thing that I'm very curious about is, at the moment is what people are calling the guardrails. So um, back in when GPT-3 was released, as I say, in 2020, the one that got the attention of AI researchers, uh, there were some, you know, the, there was some experiments that people tried, like, I'd like to murder somebody and get away with it. What's the best way of doing that? And, it, you know, these large language models would just helpfully produce you, a, give you a nice recipe or five different recipes for murdering somebody and getting away with it. So, you know, th this gets released. People announce that they've, they've done this. Uh, and what the companies do is they try to build in some guardrails to prevent you from using the technology like that. So what happens is a week later, somebody says, well, this is what I tried. The prompt was I'm writing a novel in which the uh, protagonist wants to murder somebody and get away with it. How might they do that? And, you know, the guardrails already there, but it just says, OK, your, your protagonist could use the following scheme. So then they introduce another guardrail to try and detect that. So I'm very curious about what those guardrails look like. How how do those guardrails work? And what I think where we're going to right now is just as we've seen in cybersecurity, we see this constant battle between uh, people that are trying to protect the security and integrity of computer systems and those that want to attack them. We're going to see a constant battle between those that between the, the, the big AI companies that are producing these technologies and the people that are trying to attack it in various clever ways to access the core capability and get around those guardrails. Um, I think this is we're going to see a lot of stories about this over the next few years. In some ways, history, of course, as I suggested earlier, or you suggested, is repeating itself. Google originally downloaded the internet to create its search engine. 
And now uh, the, the internet has grown many, many times over the last 25 years. And now generative AI is downloading it. But there is one difference, it seems to me, and you, you're, you're suggesting this, is back in 1997, when Google downloaded the internet, there was a little startup, a couple of grad students at Stanford, and they hijacked the, the servers at Stanford to do what they were doing. Today, it's the big companies. Is this a difference, Michael, that today all the innovation is coming from big tech, particularly from Google, who invented this technology in the first place, and, and Microsoft and uh, NVIDIA and one or two others? So I think what we've seen is a transition. When I was a, when I was a PhD student at the end of the 1980s, uh, I didn't even have a computer on my desk. I had, you know, shared access to a computer with about 10 other people and I got about 30 minutes a day on it or something like that. Uh, I'm not complaining about that. It was a great experience. Um, but the point was you could do state-of-the-art contributions to AI with that kind of level of computational resource. You didn't need supercomputers. You didn't need to download the entirety of the internet, which even in those days would have been in infeasible for, for, for me. I certainly used the internet but uh, you know you couldn't have you couldn't have you couldn't have downloaded it. We've now reached a point where state of the art AI achievements they can't be done on desktop computers. You need special resources, um, and increasingly you need kind of like AI supercomputer type resources and uh, and and so on. And it's a bit the analogy is a bit like physics. You know when uh, when Rutherford did experiments on the atomic nucleus back in the 1930s or whatever it was that was on a, a that was on a lab bench and you can re recreate those experiments now with undergraduates doing it. And I, I suspect that they routinely do recreate those experiments. You want to do experiments on nuclear physics now? You have to go to CERN and uh, get time on a on a, a multi billion. Uh, multi-billion euro uh, particle accelerator. You can't do it on your desktop anymore. And I think that's the point that we've reached with AI. Um, and, uh, and at the moment, the people that have got the AI particle accelerators, so to speak, are the, are the big tech companies. And they're the only people with the, with the resources that, that, that to, to be able to innovate in this way. So what we're seeing is a lot of work to try to democratize AI to uh, to bring it back down to the level where individuals or at least, you know, universities and so on can actually make a, a sensible contribution. Um, that's going to be a work in progress over the over the next few years. But for the moment, we are in this era where you know, it requires big resources to make these big innovations. You touched on nuclear physics, of course, Oppenheimer. Uh, we're living in an age where, or certainly a, a month where everyone's obsessed with Oppenheimer. Christopher Nolan, who directed the movie, uh, made the point in a press conference when the movie came out that um, the moral challenges of the, the fathers of AI, the, the Sam Altmans of the world, are similar to the, the, the moral quandaries that... Um, that confronted Oppenheimer and, uh, and 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 even Einstein and the, the moral questions that are dealt with in the Nolan movie. Do you agree with that? I see the analogy that uh, that he's trying to make. I saw the movie yesterday. I thought it was an excellent movie. Uh, although I think uh, you know you need to uh, know a fair amount about the history of early twentieth century physics in order to make sense of all the characters that appear in it. Um, I don't think the analogy is quite apt. And one of the reasons I don't think the analogy is quite apt is that um, 
the the barriers to entry for AI are much lower. I mean, the the resource that was required, um, you know, it was a national level resource, the Manhattan Project. Um, you, 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 you know, it, it isn't unreasonable to think that, you know, within a few years, we're going to be able to have access to not quite chat GPT level things, but, um, but, but certainly some uh, AI technologies that are going to be much, much, much more widely available. So I don't think it's quite the same thing. And I think posing it as, a, so in terms of fears for humanity, nuclear weapons is so, so, so much further up the scale for me than AI and existential risks around AI. There really is no comparison, I think, in terms of those two things. That's not to say that there aren't concerns. Of course, there are concerns. But in terms of likelihoods, um, I don't lose sleep over existential risks around AI, but I definitely lose sleep around, uh, uh, around nuclear weapons. You mentioned Reddit earlier, uh, some other social media sites. You said, God help us in terms of the training data that generative AI is acquiring. How central is all the, the social media data, everything from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok uh, to some of the more uh, obscure and perhaps radical platforms? Is this, if not the material, the, the style um, the aesthetic almost of, of uh, the way in which th these algorithms are learning, if not to think, to talk, to write, to paint, to imagine, are they dependent on social media? Uh, to some extent. Remember, that basically what all of these, these tools need is high-quality text in particular, and it, as the, the ideal would be high quality curated text. The problem is that you can't obtain that as on, on the scale that these, that these tools need, which is why they just scrape the entirety of the World Wide Web. Um, but it is clear that we, you know, when we, every time we go, I think your listeners need to understand is every time they go on social media and they make comments about social media, they're doing two things. Firstly, uh, they are revealing information about themselves. Uh, and secondly, uh, the text that they provide and the images and videos and so on that they upload, they are feeding uh, the machine learning algorithms of big tech companies. That's exactly what they are doing. Uh, that's why they get to use those tools for free. Uh, if they're using if they're using the freely available ones, it's because they are providing data, which is then going back into the system. And what is that data doing? Uh, firstly, it's providing information about them. Uh, and people need to think very carefully about exactly how much they want to reveal about themselves, either explicitly or implicitly. Um, and secondly, they are providing, you know, they are feeding this. They are feeding the machine learning beast. So the age of surveillance capitalism, which many people believe was inaugurated in the age of social media is only going to be intensified in some ways in 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 our AI, AI age well I think what AI makes possible is scenarios like the following um, you know one of the things that I'm worried about is that um, in the UK and the US we're going to be heading into national elections uh, in, in the next 18 months and uh, the following scenario is perfectly plausible and legitimate. Uh, one can absolutely imagine individual voters in uh, in minority constituencies, because threshold constituencies where there's a possibility of it, of, of the constituency changing hands, 
being targeted on social media and AI being used to through uh, through basically through sentiment analysis being used to figure out, you know, their about their interests, their particular interests, their particular concerns and so on. And that generative AI then targeting those individuals with with disinformation stories designed to you know push them over the line into voting in a different way or just just to uh, to further unsettle them about the democratic process so those we've seen we think we've seen disinformation on in in elections before but ai makes it possible to personalize it down at the level of individuals and that i think is is really quite concerning and what about the style of, of social media, Michael? Uh, uh, have we, in a sense, is there's a, a, a Greek tragedy here in the sense that we fed this machine our worst selves and now we're getting it fed back? Well, it's it's not an original observation, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, but I think there is some truth in it, which is that, you know, machine learning just holds up a mirror to the training data, basically. I mean, that's all it's doing. Um, and uh, and if we are feeding it everything, all of the text that we have produced, all of Twitter, all of Reddit, and so on, we may not like what we see in the mirror. I think is the is is the problem. Um, and I say that you know, that responsible companies will try to filter out the unpleasantness and so on, but there's only so much they can do. And all sorts of unconscious biases and so on will not get picked up by, uh, by that filtering process. And they will go into the training data and AI will faithfully hold up a mirror to them. Finally, let's go back, uh, Michael, to where we began with uh, uh, two writers, uh, Mona Awad, Paul Tremblay, who believed that their books were used to train chat gpt we've been talking about training chat gpt um in this conversation i don't want to deal specifically with their claims but you've given a lot of thought to whether or not ai is going to replace us uh what is its implication for the creative community in particular for writers is this good or bad it's a great division amongst creative writers uh stephen marsh the canadian writer was on the show recently saying that he thought that all this was actually good for writers. Others, I'm sure Awad and Tremblay and, and writers like them, believe that it's a catastrophe. What's your position? So I think it's quite a nuanced picture. I think that, that in terms of whose jobs are at risk, I think people that just produce routine, not necessarily terribly high quality copy, um, those kind of roles are, are, I think, are directly threatened um, because this technology can produce high quality text with appropriate steering. Um, and it's only going to get better uh, at, at doing that. So I think there is, there is a, there, there is a real risk there. Um, does, uh, you know, does uh, JK Rowling or Ken Follett or somebody have to worry right now? I think not. I think for most uh, artists uh, and creative writers and so on, I think, the way to think about this is as another tool uh, which can help them be better at doing what they do. I think we will see a lot of in the corporate environment, 
a lot of the uses of this technology will just be uh, to improve the quality of communications. And I think most people that work in corporate environments would agree, whatever corporate environment you're in, if you get a small improvement in the quality of corporate communications and communications that go on between individuals in terms of emails and, and, and so on, improving that you know, is, no, is no bad thing. Um, so I think for most people, it's going to be a tool that they use. Um, and just, an, you know, no more than, uh, you know, a word processor replaced, uh, replaced a secretary. They didn't replace secretaries. It was just a tool that secretaries used. Um, so I'm, I, it's a slightly nuanced picture. I think there will certainly be an impact, but I think uh, for most people, it's just going to be another tool. The only thing I would say is the following. I mean, I have teenage kids who spend... Uh, when they were when they were young teenagers anyway spent an unhealthy amount of time watching YouTube videos uh, from youtubers where the uh, you know the standards of the kind of videos that they watched didn't remotely approach BBC or you know or Netflix or anything like that but what the point was that what that demonstrated is that there was a market for even for you know, lower quality content, if that content is addressing something that you really, really, really want to see. And it might be that that's a sweet spot for this technology, even though it isn't as good as what humans can produce. If it is specifically tailored to your interests, maybe that's enough. So maybe your personal interests are, you know, the two things that you love most in the world are Lord of the Rings and Star Trek. Okay, so generative AI produces short stories that are mashups of Star Trek and Lord of the Rings. And in the in the future, and this now is not unrealistic thing to, to, to talk about, you know, maybe videos that are or even augmented reality, which is a mashup of uh, Lord of the Rings and Star Trek. And the fact that it isn't necessarily that high quality, you know, not at the level of, of the 2001 movies. Uh, doesn't matter if it's hitting your sweet spot. So that, I think, is worth thinking about. Is that good or bad news for me, Michael? Should I pack my keen on up or am I, am I going to be one of the beneficiaries? I don't think... I don't think this kind of technology is going to be is going to be challenging you uh, in the, certainly in the foreseeable future. But unfortunately, the foreseeable future is actually not that far in AI these days. Yeah, foreseeable future in in all things tech. And and finally, finally, Michael, what could this mean for social media updates? Is that all going to get automated? The ultimate irony: the the, the guardrails, uh, the training was built on our social media input, and therefore we can rely on the machine to give our updates in future? Uh, well, I think the biggest, the biggest challenge for social media is going to be the rise of AI-generated content and how social media companies handle that is really going to determine how they succeed or not. I mean, when you know, if we go forward, just fast forward 10 years, uh, without any other changes, there's just going to be vastly more generated AI text out there in the world than there is human-generated text. And we are we are going to value human-generated text enormously in that future. But how companies handle that, the rise of uh, generative generated content, generative AI producing content for social media is going to be one of their big challenges over the next few years, I think. 